Well, let's look at the book of Romans as we continue our study uh, there. This is a, a very interesting passage, and so we want, to, we want to cover it as best as we can. There's a lot of implications that go along with the uh, commands that Paul gives us in these first seven verses of the book of Romans. We will not be able to turn over every stone, but we, we want to look at the, the thrust of what Paul is trying to teach us here. So let's first read this together. This is Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be sub in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let God's people say amen to his word. So I, I have there what I think is Paul's overall point here in these first seven verses, this, this thrust here is that the civil governments of the world, as is the case for all authority, are instituted by God for the good of creation. And Christians are called to respect and honor civil governments. Um, five points I want us to discuss this morning, and, and I, I will admit that a lot of what I'm um, outlining here, I, I actually gleaned from um, the work of Kevin DeYoung uh, in an article that he wrote. You'll see it footnoted at the bottom there. I encourage you to go read it. Uh, he, he's going to cover some things in that article that we won't get to cover in this class just for the sake of time. Uh, and there are a lot of good things out there on this particular topic that I think are helpful. There was kind of an explosion of some of this in modern writing uh, with the advent of COVID and COVID restrictions and how does the church handle, you know, the government mandating certain things about worship in light of a pandemic. So you'll, you'll actually see a lot of really uh, new and relevant information on this particular topic due to the the, the pandemic that we just came through. So I'm going to pull a lot from, from his article. I'm also going to pull a lot from the Westminster Confession. And of course, we're going to look at what Paul says in Scripture and then um, also what other passages of Scripture from other uh, authors have, have given to us from God's Word. So let's, let's dive into that first point there. Number one, the government's authority is a derived 
authority. In other words, uh, just as anything in creation cannot exist in and of itself, neither can systems of authority exist in and of themselves. They are all derived from God. Uh, the fact that you and I exist today, we exist as we sit here living and breathing because God lives and exists and he upholds all things by the word of his power. None of us can exist in and of ourselves. If God ceased to exist, we would all cease to exist. And so Paul is saying the same thing about civil government, that, that civil government is not exempt from this rule that it is a derived authority. It, it exists and has authority over its populace because it derives from God. Listen to this passage here, uh, and, and, and I want to, us to discuss that this is not just something that is related to civil government, but to all authority structures uh, on earth. Look at, look at this passage here, or this, this quote from DeYoung's article. He says, quote, there are three great societies on earth, the home, the church, and the state, each of which have its authority from God. Within the home, children obey their parents, and the husband is the head of his wife. Within the church, the elders exercise loving authority over the sheep. Within the state, there are civil magistrates to exercise governing authority over people. These magistrates might be called kings or queens, governors or presidents, or the police. But regardless of the political arrangement, the idea is the same. Government authority comes from God. So the question here for us to discuss is how do these three societies, the home, the church, and the state, how do they all relate with one another in both positive and negative ways? How, how, do, these, how do these three societies interact with one another? Okay, to our point, all three are instituted by God. Yep, yep, there are authority stru structures built into it. There are calls to submission to those authority structures built within each of the, those three. Yep. How do they, and, and, and there's some cross-pollination here, right, with these. For, you know, the family is the most basic unit of society. Uh, and in some ways, it's, 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 a ba it's one of the most basic unities of the church, right, because churches are made up of family units. Uh, and so is our nation. Our nation is built up of family units. That's why we have subdivisions and, 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 and places to live, right? Because we live with our families within the state or we're gathered together as a corporate body of believers, but you're all sitting with your family units this morning. Um, and so the building or the breaking down of the family, for example, is going to have drastic impacts on both the church and the state. And as we have seen uh, in, in our own nation and, and nations all over the world, the breakdown of the church is going to have impacts upon the state. Or the, impact, the breakdown of the state is going to have impact upon the church. It's going to have impact upon the family unit. So all of these things are, are in some ways uh, relying upon one another. We need one another. God has instituted the world as such. God is a God of order. He is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of, of just random 
you know, hodgepodging uh, his creation, but he has, he has instituted order in creation. And we see that from the family to the church to the state. Any questions on that? Comments? All right, let's look at uh, point number two. Uh, the government's authority is a divine authority. Now, this is very closely related to the point that we just made, but we want to, we want to nuance this just a smidge here. Paul says, For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God, he says in verse 1. Then he says, Secondly, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. So to rebel against authority, right, whether it's uh, children in the home against their parents or it's the, uh, the, the, the flock of God against the shepherds of God and ultimately against our, our, our great shepherd Christ or if it is those of us who are in the United States who are uh, rebelling and, 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 and thwarting against the uh, the uh, authority of presidents or our constitution, uh, we are resisting God when we do that because God is the one who has set up authority. The Westminster Confession, chapter 23, deals with all of this, and in section 1 it says, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good and to this end he hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and the encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers so what we could conclude here and we're and we want to talk specifically this morning we could talk about the authority in the home and the church but we really want to talk about specifically is authority of our civil government, okay, because that's what Paul's addressing here. So let's kind of shift in that direction. So what we, what we are learning here from both Paul and then what the Westminster Confession is also teaching us is that civil government is necessary to promote and protect basic human good. They stand guard over human rights. And this, of course, is not ideal. They're not going to do this perfectly. We live in, in a fallen world, but that's what they're called to do, to defend human rights, to promote and protect human good. Kevin DeYoung says this, Before leaving the second point, let's make two related points, okay? And this, this goes to, the, I, I've, I've stated for you the ideal, but you and I, all, we all know that we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world tainted by sin. We know that government does not live up to its calling, just as none of us live up to our callings in, in the things that we're called to, right? So let's make two points. One, Kevin DeYoung says, it's always good to hold, hold Romans 13 in tension with Revelation 13. If Romans 13 describes the way things are supposed to be, then Revelation 13 describes the sad reality of the way things often are. In Revelation 13, we are introduced to the beast, the idolatrous, blaspheming, persecuting corruption of governmental power. The authorities meant to do the work of God sometimes do the work of the devil, right? And, and of course, what John wrote in Revelation 13 has direct application to 
all of the church, right? Not just to uh, the Christians who were living underneath the Roman government at the time, though everything that you read in Revelation does apply to the Roman system. It's going to continue to have application to every governmental system across, uh, across church history. He goes on to say, De Young does too, I think it's fair to assume Romans 13 is talking about lawful authority. Some authority is appropriate and some is not. Paul was willing to submit to the high priest in a way that he would not submit to false apostles in the church. Now, isn't that an interesting point? Uh, you, if you go, if you, uh, go back and, and reread Paul's imprisonment and how he is carried before um, the Sanhedrin court and he is uh, brought before the high priest, he pays the high priest, who is a legitimate governing authority within the nation of Israel at the time, he pays him respect whenever he is not willing to pay respect to false apostles. Why? Because one was a legitimate source of authority within, within the nation and one was a uh, false setup of authority within the church. And so Paul is, Paul is willing and able to distinguish between these, between these two. And so I think, you know, as, as we consider the world that we live in, I think we could probably all, for the most part, agree upon um, government authorities that are legitimate and those that are illegitimate. Um, and, and I think that this particular point is really important for us to consider long and hard before we endeavor to um, attempt a coup d'etat, you know, and overthrow our government and, and, and uh, turn over the civil authorities. So moving into a discussion question then, let's, let's, maybe we could all agree together that in some way, you are an authority. You're a leader. You might be the leader of your home as a mom or dad. You might be the leader of uh, on your job. You might be uh, the oldest sibling in here and you're, you're a leader as far as your siblings are concerned. Maybe you're in, in, a, in, a, in a class and you're um, leading a class project of some kind, right? We're all leading in some capacity or another and so the question for us to consider in light of that is if a person understands that all authority has God as its source, how ought this to affect our conduct as leaders, right? So thinking about leadership from parents to presidents, how ought this idea of derived authority from God affect how we lead our homes, our families, whatever it is that we're in leadership over? How does that affect us?
Yeah, we, we begin to, right, we, we begin to learn respect for authority by learning to respect and honor our parents. And if we don't learn it there, you can pretty much guarantee it's going to be a heart. And that's one reason why the fifth commandment is the first commandment with promise, you know. Uh, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the earth. Well, why are your days going to be long in the earth? Well, part of it's because... As someone who's learned to respect authority, just the natural consequences of that is you're probably going to live a much safer, uh, holistic life, which is probably going to mean longevity, you know. Yes. Yeah, there are no there are no little leaders ultimately because God has appointed us all, right, to be to be leading to some capacity or another, and we're called to do that with godly integrity. Yes, ma'am. That's right. There are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you said that segues into where we're going to move next, but you're exactly right. And even with the point that we made earlier about Paul's obedience to the high priest, Paul's willingness to submit to the high priest was only in so far as the high priest's authority did not supersede Scripture, right? 
and did not super, you know, Paul was not willing, for example, to lay down the truth of the gospel in order to submit to the high priest's authority, right? Um, and, and it was only in a civil way that he was willing to submit to that. So we're going to move into that in just a second as far as what is legitimate and illegitimate. Right. Yeah. And there ought to be a distinct difference between a godly leader and an ungodly leader. Right. People ought to be able to feel that difference. Yes, sir. This is a good question, and I think we're going to get into that as we move forward. So. Hold that as we move forward, and, and if you would like to comment on that more, then we'll comment on that more as we, go, as we go on. So the third point, then, is that government's primary authority is to restrain and punish evil. Uh, Paul says a few things. First of all, he says that those who resist, and this word resist in the Greek has a sense of hostility, right? Those who are uh, hostile against governing authorities will incur judgment, he says in verse 2. Second, rulers are a terror to bad conduct. That is, that they ought to strike a sense of fear and awe in our hearts to, to, to keep us from doing uh, evil things. And see that if you do wrong, you should be afraid because the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, that he has the right to render justice to those who need justice. And the Westminster Confession, chapter 23, deals with this as well. And then lastly, the governing authorities are, quote, servants of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. And this goes back to what we just read in Romans chapter 12. Paul just gave us this whole list of, of, of things that ought to be the qualities of a believer and one of the things that Paul says in Romans 12, 19, is that we are to not take vengeance into our own hands. You know, someone does you wrong, someone even does a, you know, you, there's been a lot of movies, for example, made about guys who go out and take revenge upon 
people who've killed their family. You know, a lot of a lot of money has been made in theaters over movies that are based on revenge. But Paul says it's not our place to take that sort of revenge. He says, rather, we are to, quote, leave it to the wrath of God. And then as we're reading what he is saying here in, thir- in Romans 13, he's now kind of given us a framework for how do we turn it over to the wrath of God. And he says, uh, basically, that we're doing this by allowing justice to be served through God-given means of governing authorities. It's not Tate's responsibility to take vengeance upon Luke for taking his toy. It's Tate's responsibility to come to me, to talk to me about it so that I can administer the justice that is necessary towards Luke for taking Tate's toy or vice versa, right? So this works in the home, it works all the way up. It's God has instituted means by which justice is served. It's not our job to take vengeance into our own hands. DeYoung says, in short, the first and most primary responsibility of government is to uphold the law and to punish the lawbreaker. To put it positively, government's God-given task is to protect the life and the possessions of its citizens. That's its primary responsibility. And as government of any kind, as any authority begins to move outside of that realm, it is becoming an illegitimate government, right? So let's move on to point four. The second responsibility of government is to approve, or that would be to promote what is good. Paul says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Or the Westminster Confession um, in section 3 of chapter 23 goes on to discuss this. And the the confession talks about this in regard to uh, the general public good. But specifically it's going to talk about the good of the church. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith, right? So there's a distinct difference here between um, church and the government, right? Yet, as a nursing father, it is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, as such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred function without violence or danger. It is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the person and the good name of all their people. In such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to suffer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever. And to take order that all religion and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. All right, so in other words... It is the duty of the civil magistrate to, I'm sorry, it is not the duty of the civil magistrate to force religious observance upon anyone, right? It's their their duty to protect the freedom to worship according to conscience, okay? 
so long as that conscience does not violate other human persons. So it would, be, uh, it would not be right for them to protect jihad, for example. That would not, that would not be good, okay? Um, but it is, it is the duty of the civil magistrate to uh, protect uh, the freedom to worship according to conscience and, and anything outside of that, right? As far as, you know, every knee should bow to Christ. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We, we, have, we have no qualms with stating that, that, the, that the authority, right, is God's word and that this is the truth and anything outside of this is not truth, right? Nobody denies that, of course. We're not saying that we should just turn over and let everybody have their own truth. But what we are saying is that as far as trying to force anyone to believe any certain thing, we need to wait on the king of kings to arrive, and to enforce that. It is not the duty of the church to try to force people into any particular belief system, even the truth, right? That everyone is the bearer of their own conscience. It's the responsibility of the government to promote what is the general good of its people, to protect people's life, liberty, and possessions. So our next discussion question, how ought the civil government to promote the peace and purity of the church without also interfering in the life of the church? How can they do both? Good. Yes.
Yeah. 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 Recognizing their authority, but also recognizing that we are the spiritual overseers in this nation. Yeah. So you declare truth in a ministerial and declarative way. Yes, and it goes to uh, the office. I'm sure they read it. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And maybe we should maybe we should print a few hundred copies of, of, of those chapters from the Westminster Confession and kind of send them on, you know, with a little nice little bow on them and stuff, you know, a little thank you card. We could even put a, a gift card in there to Texas Roadhouse or something, you know. Read this as you enjoy your, your appetizer bread, you know. All right, or Chick-fil-A. Yeah, chick, yeah, there you go, God's chicken. All right. All right, well, let's move on because we, we don't have long to, to get through some really important things. The last thing that we need to that we need to discuss is here is how the people of God are responsible for honoring the civil authorities. But again, we're talking about legitimate civil authority. Um, there are, and I think we've, we've made the point over and over again, there are times where civil authorities exceed the bounds set for them by God, right? And, and we are called to hold them accountable to what those boundaries are. And insofar as um, they require of us to violate our consciences, which we're going to talk about, uh, which would be bound by the word of God. Uh, we, we are not bound to obedience in those, in those ways. Okay, so let's look at this. Paul is clear as to our basic responsibilities. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Okay, what does he mean by that, right? That obedience we want to obey simply because God has told us to. That's enough reason in and of itself. But also, he says, for the sake of conscience. In other words, because it's the right thing to do. You want to do right because you love what is good and what is true. Not just because you're under a threat to do so. For it is... Because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul goes on and, and he, he talks about this in 1 Timothy. Uh, he, tells, he tells Timothy to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way so this is ultimately how we make uh we we cause effects for good in government gone wrong is through prayer right the prayer of a righteous man avails much paul says and paul says to pray for them why for what purpose so that you can live a peaceful and quiet life that you could be godly and dignified in every way. That's the goal. The Westminster Confession says, It is the duty of people to pray for their magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to, the, uh, to their authority for conscience' sake. Okay, And then, infidelity or difference of religion doth not make void the magistrates just and legal authority, nor free the people from their obedience to him, right? So the, the next president of the United States, theoretically, let's just say the next president of the United States was the Pope. That would be interesting, right? Uh, or let's say that the next president of the United States was a Muslim. 
do we have the right to rebel, to, 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 to get our torch and pitchforks and go burn down the White House? No, right? Not so long as the civil authorities are maintaining the good and, and promoting the good and protecting from the evil. And I think a lot of this comes down to, as, as we try to wrap up the next three minutes, we must remember as Christians that we are, we are living in Babylon. Okay? We are in Babylon. The, the, uh, Adam and Eve had been expelled from the Garden of Eden. Right? And what do we see in the first part of Genesis but the leading up to the building of the Tower of Babel and then God dispersed all of humanity all over the globe. And then he calls out of the people Abraham and builds the nation of Israel and gives them the promised land. And, and out of almost like a second Eden experience, right, typologically speaking, the children of Israel rebel against God. They, they, they take upon themselves idols and, and, and engage in all kinds of idolatry and God expels them from the land. And where does he send them? Babylon. And what does, what does God tell them in Jeremiah 29 and 7 but to uh, promote the prosperity of Babylon, to pray for the peace of Babylon, right? To, to go and to make Babylon as good as it can possibly be while you are there. While you wait for the hope that I'm going to bring you back home, God says. And then what happens? God brings Israel back home at least to their territory. But when they get back home, here's the interesting thing, is even though they had been removed from Babylon, Babylon had not ultimately been removed from their hearts. And they come home to all kinds of idolatry still going on in their land, right? They are still not a political uh, sovereignty in and of themselves. They're underneath the Greeks and the Romans, the Persians. They're underneath all of these different governments. They're not home yet. Enter the Son of God. What does Jesus come to do? Does he come to set up a political earthly kingdom? No. Did he, did he come to, to give them their own king again? Or to be the king himself and to set Israel up as a sovereign nation? No. He came as a wandering preacher. And he died for the sins of his people. That was the ultimate goal of Christ. And then what does he do? He says... I'm, I'm here to take you home. Follow me. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so even as Christians living underneath the reign of Christ as he reigns in heaven, we are still not home. And this earth as we know it is not our home. Home comes when Christ returns. Babylon, the book of Revelation says, is brought to its knees and destroyed when Christ comes again, and not before. And whenever he comes, it's done. He brings, he brings us home. He makes this earth all that it should have been had Adam not have fallen. And so, as we think about living in Babylon... Listen to what Alistair Begg says. We're living in Babylon. We're trying to walk this, walk this fine line between obedience to civil magistrates and obedience to Christ. He says this. I'm going to read this and then close in prayer. The line to be drawn, the line is to be drawn where we are told to disobey God. 
It is also to be drawn where we are asked to compromise on a matter that our conscience tells us will undermine the identity, our identity as a Christian. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a society, in a society that does not like what Christians believe, what we say, and how we live? It means knowing God as Daniel did, that God is in control and that he will keep his promises. He may at times deliver his people from the fire, but if not, he will always deliver them through the fire. If we know God in this way, we will be willing to draw a line. We will be ready to wrestle with exactly where to draw that line, asking for wisdom. At times, the line may be drawn in different places, but drawn they should be and crossed they must not be. This is how we live faithfully in Babylon as we walk toward our home in the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord, you have called us to be in submission to you and to your providence in the world. And this means submission to governing authorities that you have established. Lord, would you grant us patience and diligence to do this? Teach us to lead well ourselves where you have called us to lead and to govern our homes, our jobs, our churches, all which are yours and, and Lord, that which you have called us to be stewards. Apply your words to our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.